This is Flex and Herds back with Death of the Reader once again. We are starting a new novel this week, and Herds, it is an absolute pleasure to finally be diving into local gem Solari Gentil's book, All the Tears in China. This dropped in 2019. Dear friend of the show, Solari Gentil's Roland Sinclair mystery series continues as the effervescent, wild, politically opposed Roland Sinclair makes his way to Shanghai. Politically opposed, I love it. I mean, it's true, he does not want to be a part of politics, but somehow finds himself in just the right position to be perfectly embroiled in them. Yay! Yes, we are discussing chapters 1 to 14 today, and I have to say, as a point of entry for me personally in this series, this was an absolute roller coaster beginning. The action kicks off in this book straight after uh, Roland Sinclair has been attacked by a group of anti-communist thugs in the streets of Sydney, having at the end of the previous book in the series allied himself with famous communist Egon Kish, much to the chagrin of then Attorney General Robert Menzies. There's so many things we could jump on out the gate in this book. I think it's it's very notable for being the first murder mystery we've actually had on the show that it is a direct continuation. You know, there are there are always these these stories that we jump into, particularly with Nero Wolf and Sherlock Holmes, where we know the novels we're jumping into are part of a a continuation of a of a larger narrative with these characters. But this is the first novel that I've read on the show that has felt like a direct continuation of what was just happening. That said, absolute props to Solari Gentil for not making it feel bewildering what we have set foot into. The summary of what has happened to lead us to the point that we are at is very succinct, very clear, and flows very well with the action. So even knowing next to nothing about the previous book, I felt like I I was caught up almost immediately. I felt like I knew everything I need to know about Roland, including that he has an adorable nephew uh, right in the first chapter. Yeah, that said, that said, I think both of us herds fell into an absolute deep dive researching who this Aegon Kish was, because for some reason, neither of us had heard of him? I am shocked. This man, this Mr. Kish, uh, Comrade Kish, is one of the most, uh, I would say, positive influences on on recent history that I've had the pleasure of reading about. Uh, like, this guy predicted World War II, right? This is a guy, he's a communist, he's from uh, uh, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and he he traveled the world telling everyone wherever he went how awful Hitler was. And, you know, nobody believed him and Australia didn't want to have him and he caused all this controversy, but he essentially essentially told everyone that he met about there's going to be a world war and it's not going to be fun and there's going to be concentration camps. Yes, I will say that obviously he is largely the focus of the previous book, but his context is important to this one. And it's fascinating that in, you know, conventional Australian education, I don't think I ever once heard this guy's name. Um, And it was particularly interesting going back and reading through the history, but not only because the history was interesting, but also because the history writing of the time seems to be weirdly romanticized. Like I was reading in passages about how then Prime Minister Joseph Lyon had reacted to certain other controversies, like the abdication of Edward VII, I believe, or Edward VIII. I believe. And, you know, 
the the writing was basically like he didn't understand how deeply <laughs> Edward felt for this woman, and it's like this is this a history take or is this is this a poetry? Yeah, is this literature or is this is this fiction? I can't tell. No, no, I I've loved reading about this gentleman, and you're right, he was controversial. You know, the Australian government, the Lions government, tried to keep him out. Um, <laughs> for the longest time. It should be said that the significance to this book that Egon Kish has thus far is very minimal. It is just context, but it sets an excellent example for how Solari Gentil goes about just thrusting this story directly into history. So many other of the stories that we've covered on this show weasel around history, you know, just use it as a framing device off in the background. They're like, oh yes, it is the 1950s. Whereas this is like in the middle of the political turmoil of the 1930s. It gives you the dates, it gives you the time, and it just sets up that Roland Sinclair is in this upper echelon of society where he's dealing with effectively the largest political controversy of 1934. We're spending a lot of time talking about this, but it is because it is so, as you say, it's pervasive in the book. It's not just there to kind of frame events um, it, it feels very much as as part of the story itself. Um, one of the things that I actually really enjoyed uh, was that each chapter, every single chapter, and there's like excerpts from newspapers of the time talking about the global uh, conflicts, talking about Nazi Germany and Shanghai and foreigners' experience over there. And it always to uh, it's all used very eloquently to foreshadow what's going to happen in a given chapter. Um, but it also is used to put yourself in the mindset of this historical period. Mm. Effectively, what happens to kick off this novel is that Roland's brother, Wilfred, sends him off to Shanghai to oversee, but not actually sign any papers for, a business deal in Shanghai because he's concerned that his brother will get arrested if he sticks around Sydney, and also he doesn't really want to go himself. And... It is such a brilliant setup for what goes on getting to see all of these colorful, you know, historical approaches to this boiling pot, as you say, that was Shanghai. And then when we actually get into the crime of this story, it feels so engrossed in this world that even though, you know, we're still looking at the conventional trappings of murder mystery, you really just can be immersed in it in a way that I think is very distinct to how this book is written. Well, the the murder victim that we're given, Miss uh, Alexandra Romanov, who is no relation at all to Lexi Romanov, I'm sure, or any of that, any of that royal nonsense. Are you are you saying that Solari Gentil is going to later on in this book integrate more history into the story? Herds outrageous, outrageous, I say. Probably, I'm I'm ex- I'm expecting that. But anyway, anyway. Uh, the, the fact that we're, we're not just given, you know, there's this lady and she's beautiful, which we do get that, by the way. The description of Lexi Romanoff is like, she has these beautiful eyes and long hair. And I'm like, oh, no, don't get murdered. You're so lovely. Anyway. Yep. Uh, but but we're, we get a little bit more about who this person is for this little screen time. And she had that she's a taxi dancer, um, which is a concept that I've never heard of. But it's basically just that you are... Uh, you're, you're a dancer for hire, right? If you're a lonely guy on a dance floor and you want someone to dance with and you can pay someone, you know, for a ticket of their time and so they'll take you on for one, two or three dances. The kind of it's, it's kind of that unique perspective that we're given of these are the kinds of things you see in Shanghai. These are the kinds of things you see on the wild side of life that Roland is kind of getting embroiled in. I, I love the way that Slurry has managed to draw us into the life of this girl who we only really see for one scene. 
uh, before she is horribly, brutally murdered. And it is it is such an excellent scene when we find her body as well. You know, normally normally when we walk into the scene where we find the corpse, there is some buildup, there's some atmosphere, but the thing that I really loved about the delivery of finding Alexandra Romanova's corpse was that I didn't actually see it coming because it was one of a number of scenes that really got swept away with beautifully describing the vistas and the scenes of Shanghai and kind of got into this mindset where it felt like we were just about to explore uh, Roland Sinclair's psyche. And then he turns around and in the dark of the room sees a body. And it was just such a beautiful switch up and so well delivered. I was I was absolutely floored by just how taken away I was by the description in the scene that when the corpse showed up, I was like, oh, right, mystery, that thing. It's funny that you say that you were swept up in the moment um, before the crime is revealed because that's exactly what happens to Sinclair, right? He's He heads up to his room and he's looking, I think he's looking at the sunset, like he's looking out the window. He doesn't even consider, you know, it's not like uh, this is the fated moment, you know, the fated moment when the detective discovers the corpse. It's, it's incidental. It's just another part of his life. And obviously it's, you know, much more impactful than, than anything else that he, uh, that he's done so far in Shanghai. But it, it feels like it's just another thing that's happened. It's just another complication that he's being drawn into. Um, and I really, it, it's difficult to put my finger on, but you're right. It's the fact that we are carried away and we forget it's a murder mystery. We forget that this is our detective. He feels just like a regular guy um, as well, which I really appreciate. All right. I think that is just about time to wrap that up. We are going to be talking with author of the book, Solari Gantil, coming up right now on Death of the Reader. We'll be back with that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you. We are talking all the tears in China. On the line right now, we have the author of this fantastic book, Solari Gentle, returning to the show after appearing with us last year. Solari, it is so good to have you back. We are so excited to talk about this book. Oh, look, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. When we look at Roland Sinclair, it is a franchise that you have very much put in its place in history. Last time on the show, you spoke about how social issues today parallel what you write about in Roland's time. How does All the Tears in China reflect the modern day in this way? With All the Tears in China, I I had two imperatives behind that book. Uh, One was the I wanted to turn on its head the natural tendency uh, to look to the West when we look to history. So certainly, you know, I, I had written a number of books uh, about that between the wars period. But and whilst Roland was very concerned with what was happening on the world stage, his eyes were always looking West. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, in the East, in China, uh, a great deal was happening. And uh, the the spread of Nazism was, was also infiltrating uh, China, but uh, on top of that, they they had their own issues with with communists, their own politics, um, with the the start of the Long March, with the warlords that were uh, taking control in Shanghai, and the very the very nature of Shanghai itself as a as a city which was owned by foreign bodies, uh, which is a really interesting situation in in a sovereign nation, and certainly now. As much as back then, China is is on our mind, and what's happening in China is affecting uh, what is happening here. 
So um, I, I wanted to, the second thing that I wanted to look at was, was just that, how trade is used by nations as weapons. Today, you know, we find ourselves in the midst of a, a kind of a trade war with China. I just uh, heard the announcement that Australians have been um, advised that if they visit China, they may be arbitrarily detained. Um, so we're having a similar sort of run-up in today's scenarios and in today's world, you know, 80, 100 years later. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, you have a a very large kind of political spectrum that you're, you're showing off in this book. You got, as you set in China, we have an Australian uh, so detective being set in. And to accompany uh, the broader political spectrum, we, we even have an entire caravan of Watsons in this book, including a love interest uh, and, and two communists. Um, I'd love to know, how did you come about including so many characters in the regular cast that kind of travel with Roland from, from place to place? And what rule of thumb do you use to, to juggle these characters? Generally, because um, I'm an organic writer or a pantser, uh, I just sit down and start writing and characters walk in as they will. So I presume at some point the story required a character and they walked in. I was careful to not tokenize characters. So there is a there's a tendency when you write in a foreign country just to bring in your 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 token natural born person from that country to basically stand for all the stereotypes of the country or the or the general person. I always try wherever I'm writing to make sure that my peripheral cast are a whole people in their own right. So these characters walk in and they bring with them their own quirks and their their own idiosyncrasies. Uh, but I'm hoping that together as a whole, they give you a feeling and a, a sense of Shanghai in all its amazing um, multicultural, cosmopolitan turmoil. Shanghai was a place where East met West, but not in a, a gentle sort of way. It met East met West in a kind of an explosion of, of color and culture. Yeah. So when you talk about Shanghai in that way, kind of the classic melting pot of cultural politics, what is it that really stood out to you as being the best setting of the book? Do you think it was the most accurate historical example, as you say there, or were there certain historical allegories to the political drama we see going on in the story that also were reflected in the time in Shanghai back then? I think Shanghai presented me with a place where the same concerns or the same threads and movements that were occurring on the world or in the rest of the world and in the West uh, were also occurring in Shanghai, but it was almost a mirror image. The Nazis were still expanding into Shanghai and trying to um, get a foothold. They were working with the Japanese and they were this, and certainly in the Bund, which was the, the German area of Shanghai, the Hitler Youth was having its camps and um, uh, parades, etc. With ev every country, like every person, brings their history into a present argument. Um, so when you have an argument with a human being, how they argue and how they react and where their uh, buttons are uh, is dependent on what went on before. And it was it is the same thing with China. Uh, China's history, its dealings in the past with the West um, made it take a particular perspective 
uh, on what was happening in 1935. Mm. Um, and similarly today, China's history influences the way it responds to movements and allegations and questions by the West. I think, you, I think you've made a really excellent case for how to deal with other cultures in writing, why it's important and how useful as a writing tool it can be to use history as a, a framing device beyond just the the present tense. And I guess on that note, how fun is it to deal with other cultures beyond just the, the cultural respect and getting in touch with history? Is it fun for you as a writer to step outside that comfort zone and deal with something that you've grown up outside? It, it, is, it is a great deal of fun. It's also slightly terrifying because uh, you, you do want to pay the proper respect to that culture. You don't want to tokenize it. You don't want to do it badly. I learned so much about Chinese history that I did not know uh, in order to write this book. When you write a historical novel, you're not actually giving people a lecture on the history. It means that you have to know it better because it has that, that history has to be expressed naturally in order to actually encapsulate that that history and that background and the richness of why people respond the way they do, you have to actually know it really well. But then the other part of it is that writing a story in another culture, in another uh, country is like traveling. It, it's letting your imagination travel and meet uh, the kind of characters, the lives and life characters that are walking around at the time. So that is incredible fun and it's it makes it easy to write because um, that same sense that you have when you're traveling where you're in in a new country for the first time and you're being absolutely bombarded by different things and smells and sensations and and ideas that happens when you're imagining a different setting and and putting your story into a different setting for me as a writer yeah, uh, it's something that I've done a lot. In some ways, you know, traveling in your head exceeds the experience of really traveling because uh, you can immerse yourself in the minutiae of a culture that you might not actually experienced while you're trying to find your visa and your passport. Yeah, obviously, when you're trying to de depict a culture that you have no uh, or, or very little interaction with, especially in, in, in living memory, there's it's always important to be respectful, you know, when you're depicting another culture. I, I'm curious, Solari, what are some of the most exciting things that you have learned about Chinese culture while embedding yourself in it for this book? I was really fascinated with the history of well, the recent history of China and the confrontation and the ongoing um, animosity between China and Japan. I had been vaguely aware of it, but I hadn't really understood why and what had happened and the terror that had occurred in the time. So when you look at uh, Japan's invasion of Manchuria and you look at what they did to the Chinese and uh, also to a lot of the white Russians that happened to be caught in there. It was a precursor to what went on in Nazi Germany. So a couple of thousand people die in America and we feel it. We, we feel it as a loss of our own. A couple of thousand people die in the East and it, you know, is the third item on the news. Mm. And it's not something that visits the same trauma on us. Uh, it's always presented in this 
aura of exoticness, but not really a story of real lives and real people. And of course, there was, you know, characters like Du Yusheng, who was, uh, well, he was a gangster and a, a mobster or warlord in, in Shanghai. At the same time, when, uh, when it came to the war, he was very much a, a Chinese patriot. And I quite like those sort of characters that are neither wholly good or wholly bad, that uh, have a complexity in them. And all those people working and living together in this melting pot of a city and clashing and 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 pulling out their lives, it, it was just a – it's an absolutely fascinating place in which to write and in, in which to imagine your characters and yourself. Now, Solari, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Death of the Reader, indulging us in the, the dream of every fiction reader in getting to pick the brains of the author directly over the text they've just read. We cannot wait to have you back on the show next week, and we'll see you then. Oh, can't wait to come back. This is Death of the Reader. We are talking All the Tears in China by Solari Gentil. Flex and Herds here with you. Chapters 1 to 14 are on the table today. Herds is in the hot seat, and I am very excited to see where you can take this absolutely open circle, historically engaged mystery. The possibilities seem endless, and I am so excited to see where you take this. I'm going to let you know, I'm not super confident in my ability to solve this mystery right now, but we get, look, we're going to get there. I'm, I'm sure of it. Yeah, so we're presented with this this mystery of this Alexandra Romanov, uh, who is definitely not uh, a Russian princess. But anyway, I will say, Herds, uh, we are doing we are doing double or nothing this year, and your your second point for this book is going to be whether you can pick this week whether you think it is actually going to be the ill-fated princess of the Russian royal family. Oh, sure. That's a good that's a good one. No, no. Well, that is that is something that I'm kind of curious about because we've we've kind of been ed- introduced to her as as the murder the murder victim. So we can't really interrogate her. Um, we're going to have to rely on the various other I guess Russian and communist characters to like give us her backstory and figure out what's going on there. Um, I'll be honest, this week I have my eyes set on on the count uh, Nikolai because it's highlighted that uh, he's part of the gang that's, that, that wants to squeeze Wing for all that he's worth, for his gambling debts. But Nikolai uh, is stated by Wing to, you know, be a count. Uh, but Wing cautions us that titles are something that anyone can just give themselves and that, you know, the, the royal blood has been watered down, all that sort of thing. So I think that the twist is going to be that Nikolai has, has killed Alexandra. Interesting, interesting. Probably along the lines of, because, like, communism is so central to the story, I can't imagine it won't figure into the story in some way. Like, it's such a political text. I think that Nikolai perhaps is threatened by her, or, like, because she might be the Russian princess, he's trying to sweep her under the rug so that his, like, own status account can't be exposed as being false or something like that. I also think that Nikolai is wanting to frame Roland, um, possibly for, for associating with Idon Kish, 
that's that's th- this part I'm less kind of sure on. I definitely think that Roland is being framed. That's the part that I'm trying to figure out. The the problem is that we haven't seen a lot of Nikolai, and this is partly why I'm suspecting him because he's only been in one scene, and he seems like he should be important. I'm quite curious, Herds, as to why you seem to have entirely neglected the reason that Roland Sinclair is in China, because we know that his brother has asked him to come and deal with wool traders who seem to be uh, Japanese when the book often deals with the uh, the hostile takeover of Manchuria at the time. I'm more focused on the like communist angle right now, and maybe I'll have a look at that again going forward to the next part, maybe when we actually like learn more about this deal because it's it's like a it's a wool deal with with the japanese there's gonna be some trade embargoes it it seems basically that wilfred is just trying to keep them at bay until the embargoes come in place so he can make his money elsewhere that was my impression going through but it's not really made clear to us and thus far seems to largely be a tool for tension because characters like wing have backgrounds in manchuria yeah, well th- this is the problem is that there's there's for me trying to like solve this um, I'm famously bad with names and like broader details, so it's this this book is causing me some problems. But there are clearly like three prominent thrusts of the story. There's this crime gang, which I'm convinced is a red herring. There's this communist party politics business, which points me towards the count. Um, but then there's also the angle of like what's going on with the. Japanese wool deal. I mean, the other thing is it could just be a structural choice where we haven't got into that yet and we're merely laying the seeds for that later, but we don't really have the tools for that just yet. The, the thing that does stick out to me um, is that, and this is like such an obvious hint that I'm not even sure what to draw from it, when Roland first lands in Shanghai, he's immediately almost kidnapped, which to me says that whoever is trying to kidnap him thought that it, because they, you know, in the novel they say, oh, well, Europeans get kidnapped all the time around here. But like in a murder mystery story, I can't possibly believe that it's a coincidence. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I can clearly see these like two political threads going on here. One on the side of the of the communists and like what's going on there. And the other that's on this like Japanese deal. And I think that one of the kidnappers spoke in German, which is like, is this some like Nazi Germany nonsense? going on like is this a nazi ploy is that what's happening like is count nikolai a secret nazi is that where we're going right it it there are just so many possibilities and this is why i love the state of the mystery in this book you just don't know where it's going to go yet and to some extent that is frustrating as a mystery focused reader like myself but on the other hand it gives you the opportunity to just go along for the ride which is sometimes called for yeah and i think that the the thing that I'm kind of struggling with is that these events are obviously, they're all intentional. They're all part of, you know, Roland Sinclair is in Shanghai and I guess these different groups are targeting him and he, he seems mostly oblivious to his own significance, which is fun. Um, that's it. I should, I should address my, my second point. I don't know if we get this, but I do think that this uh, Alexandra Romanov is going to turn out to be the real princess. I think that's going to be like the reveal. Uh, we, we should say for the context of readers who are unfamiliar, the general assessment of history is that Anastasia did not survive. And there are pieces of evidence that more or less solidly prove that uh, as far as I understand, though I am not a student of uh, Russian history myself. So it is, it is a bold take to say that a historically engaged writer like Solari Gentil would make that choice. Yeah, but it's I don't know, it's it's 
fantasy, right? Like if you are given the chance to rewrite, you know, a particular point in history for your novel, like I would take the chance to rewrite things and say, well, what, how would that affect these other events? And how would that, you know, roll forward in the great dominoes of history? Do you think this novel is going to adhere to any of our three conventional murder mystery rule sets? <laughs> um, I promise I haven't read any of her other works, so I don't really know how she writes, but I think I think it should at the very least adhere to Knox, surely. Interesting, interesting. You don't like I don't know. I sh- I assume it would. Slurry seems like a pretty chill person. That's true. You have stared her down across a microphone. I have I have met her, and I'm afraid to say otherwise. So I think she's a lovely person. You've looked into her soul and understood <laughs> <laughs> the Hello. inner machinations. I think that it'll probably adhere to Knox and uh, probably Raymond Chandler's. Oh, definitely Raymond Chandler's. We should talk more about that next week. But... We, we definitely should. Like, I think it's just uh, going to be an entertaining time for sure. You know, it's very much written like a movie, like especially with all these like fight scenes and action sequences that are, that are popping up. Yeah, it, it'll be it'll be fun to see. I think that this is one of these books that rather than sitting through and picking and going, oh, yes, this does or does not follow the strictures of one Sir Ronald Knox. It's, you know, much more along the lines of, damn, that was fun, and you did a Nox as well. I mean, that suits me just fine, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm in the mood for a crazy, hammy, fun time, as I said. I completely agree. So, <laughs> I'm going to go watch some Quentin Tarantino and come back to this, I guess. <laughs> All right, we are going to wrap that there for today. Thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. If you are listening to this on your favorite streaming apps, wherever that happens to be, drop us a review. It greatly helps us out. And of course, check us out social media at Flex and Herds. We will be back next week with more from all the tears in China. We are going to be covering chapters 15 to 27 next week on the show. And Herds, before we wrap up, we should mention Wing Hard did name drop the title of the book already. Oh, did he? Yeah, he did. Oh, I totally missed that. What context? Did I miss that? He said that all the tears in China couldn't make up for the purging of the communists. <laughs> oh no, I do remember that. Yeah, that was like, that was incredible. We'll be back with that next week. Stick around. You're listening to 2SER. We've been Flex and Herds. See you then. Flex and Herds.